Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel, would you lead us with a scripture and a prayer? I'd like to begin with uh, Romans 12.2. Do not conform yourself to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Gracious God, we do ask your blessings that we may be freed from the temptations of this world, that we might always live in your kingdom. I ask you to bless the time and anoint with the Spirit the time that we spend here today uh, with one another and also with those who are listening, that we might all be instruments of grace for conversion, deeper conversion for all those who are participating. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. So, Father Nagel, we, um, we live in a time that has seen the canonization of St. John Henry Newman, someone who um, sort of labored in that process for a while, venerable and then beatified, and then um, finally canonized as a saint. And I know lots of folks that are listening have heard of his name, um, and maybe are familiar with a couple of quotes of his, but for those who are not familiar with St. John Henry Newman, do you mind just giving us sort of a brief like overview sure. of, of sort of his journey, his life? You know, and and, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to prophesy here and say that he will be a doctor of the church eventually as well. Um, that's just my 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 feeling that uh, he's he was very important in my own uh, conversion and my own uh, reversion, I should say, and in, in my spiritual growth and development. So, um, in fact, the oratorians in London, not not the Birmingham oratorians, but the London oratorians, I I got to know somewhat, and when I spent a year in London there, but he was. Uh, his, his years are, uh, take almost the entire 19th century. He was born in 1801, I believe, and died in 1890. And, and he was a, uh, an Anglican clergyman, um, Church of England uh, minister, uh, parson, I guess you'd say, but always an intellectual. So he was an a, a Oxford professor and uh, chaplain. And he was the main, a, a huge figure in the Oxford movement. Um, it, there's many leaders of that movement, but it basically was a, a movement within the Church of England that sort of going in a Catholic direction. Sometimes they were called the Tractarians. They would put out these tracts for the times, kind of these pamphlets. Um, and they were very, they just shook up the established church in England during the Victorian era. And again, the, it's a movement that eventually sort of became called the Anglo-Catholic movement within Anglicanism. But again, in the midway of his life, uh, you know, thinking like Dante, in the midway of his life, in 1845, he converted to the, the Catholic Church. And this was a shocker for England. Um, the Catholic Church was still denigrated as being essentially non-English um, and being a foreign thing. And so in, in Newman, this leader of the Oxford movement, this influential clergyman, to, to become a Catholic would kind of like being... If in 1950 you would become a communist as an American politician or something, it was seen by going on to the other side, and but it was he was hugely influential, and he he really brought the oratory, the congregation of the oratory, to England. Um, so again, St. Philip Neri's congregation, he he established an oratory in, in Birmingham, and he was an influential inf uh, figure within the Catholic Church uh, as well as in England as a whole during the later part of the 19th century. And so he eventually made a cardinal, which was uh, by Louis uh, Leo the Thirteenth, which was a real sign of approval for his um, his theology. That at the time, again, the time of Vatican I and, and the controversies of Pius the Ninth, I mean, he was seen as a kind of a liberal Catholic. Although that really wouldn't be this, you know, liberal then didn't necessarily mean the same thing as now. But but he. When Pope Leo XIII made him a cardinal, sort of just put a, a stamp of approval on him, saying his his ideas, his um, he accepted certainly a papal infallibility of Vatican I, but he you know he had some limitations that the, the Pope uh, and the Council himself agreed on in terms of what does infallibility mean, and so he you know he actually is his he's weathered well in terms of history, and so I I, I said that I thought he might become a doctor of the Church. Because I think of this whole idea of the development of doctrine. Uh, he, had a, he had a book on that topic. And, and so this idea that the, the teaching of the church grows, it doesn't change in the sense of, it, you know, it doesn't become a different animal. It doesn't con contradict itself, but it does unfold. Um, and from the oak comes, you know, from the acorn comes the oak. But the acorn doesn't produce a cactus. You know, it, it, there, there's, there's change. So he, he was the one to sort of put out that idea of the, the, 
the development of doctrine that's really been absorbed in the church since. So anyway, um, died of, uh, of old, in old age, full of honors. He, he was, uh, I think the other book that was really important to me was his, his autobiography, sort of the defense of his life because he was attacked by an Anglican clergyman for basically being dishonest in his whole life, um, being one of these sneaky Jesuitical Catholics who really would never tell the truth. And so he put out this book just sort of defending his, his conversion experience and his, his path that it actually sort of won him a second, uh, second bout of popularity in the latter part of his life. So this is more than you wanted to know, but, but, that's, but, but again, it's important to me, so I, I, I have those sort of thoughts in my mind. So that's um, not a, such a brief sketch of his life. Oh, no, I love it. I, I, this is wonderful. In fact, I, I want to kind of stay on this for a little bit. I know we've got all these beautiful quotes, but we always, ponder, we always start at the, uh, the preface or the introduction to our, <laughs> to our program. I don't think we ever get to uh, always dive into the, uh, the, the details. So, the, uh, yeah, when I think about um, uh, John Henry Newman, uh, I connect him to my uh, doctoral studies as well. Um, one reason was kind of a cutesy reason is that uh, there's a, uh, a tense moment in the life of a, of a PhD student, and that is when they have to pick out what, what are they going to write on? What are they mm. going to do their dissertation on? And the, the, sort of the joke is that there's only one, uh, one author who is worthy of attention in the English language, yeah. and that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, John Henry Newman, yes. right? Uh, the, everyone else is... Um, Everyone else is, uh, is, there's no one else writing in English language uh, that is uh, really able to do that. So yeah. uh, to, to carry the weight of the right. position. I, so, yeah, I agree. That's in my, in my seminary times that everybody was writing about Newman because, again, he's, he's a heavyweight, a theological heavyweight, where there aren't a lot of English or American theological heavyweights. So I, I agree that, that he was a very popular topic. You know, uh, Father Nagel, I got to let you know, uh, there's a gift that has entered the room. Uh, really, Father Father Lewis is on site. Hallelujah! <laughs> yes. Finally, yeah. We were. You must have heard us talking you down, Father Lewis. How you had <laughs> abandoned us. You had abandoned the nets and us, and that, you followed the Lord. That was That's Tom. how we started the program. That, that was Tom. I said, Father Lewis. I said that people were turning off the radios because you weren't on. So you decide you know who your friend is right here. Who, who respects you and who's charitable? You just you, you probably, just decide. You probably got some phone calls, and he says, "I better get up there and, and rescue this program quickly because they're talking about St. John apart. Henry Newman." So. <laughs> So, oh, Father yeah. New, uh, so Father Father Newman, uh, Father Lewis, <laughs> we're talking about Saint John Henry Newman and reflecting on our time in the, uh, in, in our own relationship to him. And uh, Father Nagel had a beautiful kind of sharing of, of the connection in his own life to Saint John Henry Newman. And I was just sharing in the uh, the PhD program that choosing a dissertation topic was a big deal, and there was only one candidate for an English language. Uh, author, and that was St. John Henry Newman. So he had all these dissertations showing up that were about Newman. But um, the other, I would say the other two points, uh, in addition to his apologia, um, was the grammar of ascent, and in, in particular, the illative sense that, um, that really, like that novel idea about how people come to a sense of God in mm-hmm. their lives, not only notionally, right, through concepts and uh, through logic and, and through a pursuit of the truth, but through a mining of human experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is incredibly profound, mm-hmm. the illative sense, and that's found in the grammar of a sentence. The other one was the idea of a university, um, which also was something that um, sort of bubbled up in our mm-hmm. own uh, understanding of, um, you know, what is it that it is at the essence of a university education? So uh, those are two other uh, themes that came from his writings that, I know had an impact on my life, in particular the illative sense, because of my um, deep passion for um, dialogue. So, how do you actually share the faith with others, as well as evangelization, in terms of pointing people to places in their own experience where God is at work in in ways that they may not be aware of? Mm-hmm. So, Father Lewis, you're you're nodding. Yeah, well, not was... nodding off, nodding, <laughs> nodding. Yeah. Um, uh, I was thinking of the other the other thing that the university and the purpose of it. I, I believe it was uh, Cardinal Newman who effectively kind of began the model of the Catholic University, didn't he? The Catholic University of Ireland was the first like national Catholic University, 
and we got our Catholic University of America. And so I was nodding, I guess, because it's like all coming together because uh, John Garvey uh, is the outgoing president now, Catholic University of America. So I, and I got to go to seminary there. So I got to re- receive from the rich tradition that began with uh, Cardinal Newman. So that's why I was nodding. I was like, this, this is all sounding familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say that whole idea of a university, there's a, there's a connection there with sort of the classical model of education, too. Because he he was he would talk about what's the purpose of a universe what what ended up being what's the purpose of a liberal education um, and so I do think that he's he would be one of the sort of the not the founder but but certainly a, a patron saint of that idea of how do how does how does a person become educated and what does that even mean so I, I think that there's a a real topical relevance for him today as well in, in terms of that as a, a theologian of education. No promises, Father Nagel, but you might hear something about that on Thursday night. Oh, Actually, yeah. your parish, your parish might. Oh, There's I'll a guy coming in there to talk about uh, the benefits of a classical approach to formation and education. Some guy named Tom Curran. Oh, oh yeah. I've heard, uh, I've, yeah. Heard, I've, heard, I've heard good things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you had to say that there. But, uh, you, no, I'll be, uh, I'll be at your parish on Thursday night, and then on Friday night I'm going to be at um, Father Lappy's parish, yeah. Our Lady Star of the Sea, um, to speak to parents and, and anyone interested on um, a, a liberal arts education, sure. a classical come understanding. To, yeah, come to St. Monica's on Thursday night at 7 o'clock, I believe, isn't it? 7 to 8, yeah, yeah. that's so right. So Tom's going to have a, a talk there. It's been fascinating, and everybody's welcome. Yes, so... That just there's a little uh, prom- promo there happening for the <laughs> no, this is a providential <laughs> providential uh, occurrence. Yes. Well, you, you know, Father Nagel, I, I have to go all the way across the state to get invited to speak. I don't know. Not like there's my own parish right down the street where Whoa. I could actually get a chance to speak. Well, it's I the suppose pastor. the priest doesn't Got, care. Go. The pastor, <laughs> the pastor's putting up these big walls, right, preventing me from coming. Uh, actually, we spoke, Father uh, Lewis, about speaking on the theme of um, parenting in, in association with um, Internet usage. Oh, right. And um, I just had on a guest last week, this Dr. Michael Gurian. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been a professor at uh, Gonzaga University for a number of years, not, not any longer, but was. And he does brain science. He does all this stuff on brain science. And he spent about 15 minutes talking um, in the interview. Um, it was aired last Thursday um, about brain science and its impact, the impact of the Internet and screens on the brain, on the physiological development of brains. And it goes beyond the typical things that you hear about. You know, you tend to hear about uh, serotonin and you hear about dopamine and, and those sorts of things. He gets into it at a much, much deeper level. And it is frightening as well as fascinating. Um, and, and there's an event coming up, uh, the Spokane Fatherhood Initiative. Their, their event's coming up actually on Saturday, this Saturday on the 2nd. Um, and wow, really striking stuff. Um, so anyways, it's just uh, more and more, I think, information is coming out about uh, the use of the Internet and how it's deforming and shunting the normal development of brains um, you know, in, in boys and in girls. And so what's at stake in that? I'm going to be weaving in some of that on Thursday and Friday night as well. So lots of, of good stuff to cover there. So, all right. So today on the program, we are going to take a look at some quotes by St. John Henry Newman. And we have 17. Any, any bets on how many of these quotes we're going to get through, Father Lewis? Four. Four. <laughs> <laughs> Father Lewis, that is a pretty low number. <laughs> Just to prove you wrong, pretty, we're going to get through at least Pretty average, six. though. <laughs> Two apiece. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to begin right with the first one. And um, Father Nagel, you said this was your favorite quote, so we're going to let you go first on this one. To live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. To live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. I have to laugh a little bit because this is, uh, this is at the heart of one of those wonderful... Um, moments where you can just pick out a perfect quote. I was sitting at a table uh, at the seminary. Uh, I always showed up early for breakfast, and there's there's like five or six of us who came early. As soon as the breakfast, uh, the cafeteria was open each morning at Mundelein, we would be the first ones in there, and we would have our table for like a half hour before anybody else showed up. And the topic came up uh, somehow about... Um, this the question, and this is why I bring it up, is that one of the seminarians was talking about that 
Um, you know, I thought to be perfect was to be unchangeable. God is, un, you know, it, it, whatever. It, it, it was kind of going down that that um, that direction. And Bishop Barron had had a class on Newman, so we were all kind of familiar with Newman because everybody took Barron's classes. And so we were, that was kind of where the argument was going. And I had read this, and somehow God had let me remember that this quote because right before it, before this line, Newman says. In a higher realm, it is different, but to live is to change and to be perfect. But in this world, to live is to change and to be perfect is to have changed often. And so he was recognizing the idea of the idea of the divine, uh, divine is unchangeable, et cetera. And so I can just kind of pull that out and say, oh, by the way, let me just solve this argument for you. So it's just this wonderful ka-ching flexing moment for me. So this, this, uh, this quote's always been a favorite for me, but I do think it goes back to the idea of the development of doctrine, the idea. I do think that sometimes we think, well, the church, the teaching can't change. We're told that we've re read it. That you know, we we have this unchangeable truth, and that's the the glory of the Catholic Church. That we don't get buffeted by different winds of doctrine. But, but I do think this idea uh, is is important that that the church is alive, and and it's the body of Christ. It's not a dead body. It's a living body, and to be alive is to change. Um, that's the, that's the nature of of life. But it's not to be perverted or to radically morph into something else. It's simply to grow deeper, bigger in terms, even love of God changes. It remains the same, I'm still loving God, but it just goes deeper. So I do think there's a wonderful sort of organic quality to our faith that this brings out. And, and it can be a good answer for some people who's, who say, well, didn't the church say this back in the 19th century and now it says this? Well, again, to be able to understand the development of doctrine as opposed to um, changing doctrine. So again, I think it's a powerful quote. Father Lewis. Well, I got to admit the uh, first thing that came to my mind on this quote was uh, nothing so lofty as that, but was was sharks. And I read somewhere <laughs> that sharks have to keep moving forward or they die. I don't know if that's true, but I think I read that somewhere. So I don't even know how they sleep. But I've used that as an analogy talking with parishioners. Like if we're not actively trying to pursue growth in our faith and therefore changing then if we're not growing, we're dying. We're wilting and dying in our faith because stagnation is really not an option. If uh, Until we attain to the kingdom, stagnation is not an option because we're not at the kingdom yet, so we've got to keep moving forward. And so I just thought of Shark, and then I, I think after that, um, a, a great scene from Band of Brothers. See how I go, movies and animals. <laughs> There's a great scene from that show, Band of Brothers, where the, the head guy, he's been promoted cardinal. Uh, uh, cardinal. Wow, listen <laughs> to me. <laughs> he's been pro promoted colonel, I think. And so he can't lead his troops, and there's this key battle where his successor, this major, needs to lead the troops, and he says the key is you're in open field, you're going to be in open fire. You've got to keep moving forward or you're sitting ducks and you're dead. And in a panic, the major stops and is scrambling and all the rest, and the guy's shouting from behind, keep moving forward, because if you don't keep moving forward, then you're dead. And so to live is to change, to live is to keep moving forward in that pursuit of, of growth. And, um, and so it is with our spiritual life, too. Um, and there we attain the perfection uh, that we seek and to which God calls us. So sharks and movies, that's my go-to. <laughs> well, I actually thought of the Summa Theologica. So isn't this funny? <laughs> so the, in St. Thomas Aquinas, he takes up the theme of perfection um, as it relates to our call to holiness, which is the perfection of charity. And he identifies a perfect perfection of charity, which is only attained in heaven, versus the perfection of charity that is appropriate for one who is on the way, and that's us. And so this idea of change is connected to our status, that mm -hmm. the status that we have here on earth is that we are ones who live on the way. And so the perfect perfection of char charity occurs in heaven, but there's an imperfect perfection of charity that occurs here on earth. And I, I, I have found that to be a wonderfully helpful distinction because of those who like embrace a belief that says, um, you know, uh, sin is never permitted, right? So God hates all sin, and so we should never sin, never give ourselves any kind of space to sin. But Aquinas, in, in this concept of the perfection of charity, says that sin can exist in the life of one who is living out this perfection of charity on the way. And the distinction he makes is between falling into sin and jumping into sin, mm. or the willful decision to sin versus the stumbling into sin out of weakness. 
that even those who are living the perfection of charity will still fall into sin. And that is so comforting because when we hear perfection, we think, well, that means there's nothing that is um, uh, awry. There is nothing that is out of place. But to say, well, no, you can actually live as a, uh, in accord with your call to, to universal call to holiness um, and, and still fall into sin out of weakness because that's part of our status here on earth that we're still on the way. Any comments on that, fathers? Well, as you were speaking, I was thinking of um, this morning at Mass, I have uh, one of my newest uh, uh, children of the parish serving now at Mass, and he was trained on Saturday and served once on Sunday, and then this was his second time serving. And I can see what you're describing because um, he's on the journey of being, uh, of growing through life and being a better server at the altar, and so uh, he's giving the best that he's got. Uh, the actual content of what he offers, like, for example, he didn't ring the bells quite at the right time and in the right way, but I didn't get all flustered because he's giving it his best shot and he's eager enough to want to keep getting better. So at the level where he's at in his journey, his condition at the present time you know, is as good as it can be, as perfect, and, and he's going to continue to grow so the perfection will get more perfect. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think I'm hearing you right, and I think that's... That's the example that came to my mind. I was thinking about the, again, I'm, I'm, I like the Carmelite saints and doctors. And again, Teresa and Avila would, would make this distinction of uh, uh, semi, uh, semi-voluntary venial sins um, and imperfections. And John on the Cross would, 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 would say the same thing and say sometimes it's the, it's the, you're not planning it. You don't intend it really. But something happens and you're caught off guard and you're in your fallen nature and you snap or you, again, it's not, not something that's fully thought out, but you know, she said, this was her again, doctor of the church, somebody had experienced all these incredible spiritual gifts, extraordinary phenomena, et cetera. But she said, this could still sometimes happen that um, without fully intending it, et cetera, but, but you, you do, you, some, something slips out, something happens, you react. Um, it's semi-voluntary. It's not. Compl- it's it's enough. So there's a little sin there, but it's not something that you, um, that you meditate upon. Yes, I I, I love that. I love that. again just that conf- confirmation that comes in the tradition here. So we have Saint John Henry Newman building off of great saints like Thomas Aquinas and. Uh, and and um, St. Teresa of Avila, and in others. Well, we're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to dive further into quotes by St. John Henry Newman. Back in a moment with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. He had to surprise us. <laughs> Great to have you here, Father Lewis. Thank you. And uh, the second quote actually is has some resonances with the first one. A man would do nothing if he waited until he could do it so well that no one could find fault. And so, Father Lewis, you're up. Well, I mean, uh, hmm. I mean, when I was, uh, before I was in seminary, I took, um, uh, I took, uh, I was a major in, in business. I have a degree in business. Uh, and one of the great, I thought it was a great lesson, seems to go against this, this saying here. So I'm trying to reconcile what I thought was um, a great adage with this, and the adage was, you know, the per- the good answer today or the good solution today is better than the perfect answer tomorrow. And I like that because if we're always going to be waiting for the perfect answer, then we're just going to be waiting forever. We'll never move forward. But here it almost sounds like he's saying the opposite. A man would do nothing. He would wait until he could do it so well that no one could find fault, until the perfect answer and the p- perfect solution uh, uh, presented itself. So I'm sure that they they might be able to re- be reconciled, or I've been living life in- incredibly wrong for low these 20 years. Sure, no, I think that quotes the same thing that <laughs> yeah, you're saying. I, I, oh, good. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. so, too. I think the okay. quote backs you up exactly. I'm, okay, good. Phew. Well, in that case, I'm good company. <laughs> I, I must have heard you, it wrong. Or you actually it. didn't read that well, but uh, you know what? If we waited till you read it perfectly, we would not we, go forward. So. <laughs> we'd still be waiting. Sorry, yeah. that was too easy, Father. You just, like, <laughs> walked me into that one. So, <laughs> Father Nagel, any comments on that quote? Well, I, I was just thinking about... Um, I think you were talking about perfection, and I, th- I thought you were going to go a slightly different direction in, in just a mo- moment ago. And but it, you're basically the same, the same thing. And the idea of I think sometimes people are so intimidated by the saints that they're saying, "Well, they're perfect, and I'll, I'm not. Therefore, I can't be them. I, I can't. Um, I, I'm not them, and so I, I can't relate." 
and they're supposed to use trying. And so I think that that is what we, this, one of the things this quote's trying to get away from is, is saying, no, this is, you know, start now. Um, you're not going to be perfect. You are going to fall, but seek, seek God with all your heart. Uh, you, you won't start that way and it, you won't be successful all the time, but you're not going to be ever successful if you don't start. And so in the spiritual life, I, I, I see that happen in terms of spiritual direction and counseling, et cetera, where people just sort of get um, stymied and frozen just by their own lack of, their own sense of imperfection of themselves and not recognizing, well, God recognizes that you have to grow. You're not going to instantaneously become a saint. So do you know where I see this happening uh, a lot is um, Carrie and I focus a lot on helping married couples and helping them foster faith in their families. And the idea of praying together as a couple, or in particular, the father leading prayer in the home, it's a foreign concept. And so it's an awkward idea. And because it's foreign and awkward, it's never been done before it can come across as an intervention. Mm -hmm. Like all of a sudden now, kids, we're going to start living differently. We're going to get together after dinner. Stop what you're doing. Okay, come on now. We're going to go into this living room. We're going to light a candle, and we have this holy image in front of us, and we're going to pray a rosary or pray a decade of the rosary. Or, you know, Dad here is going to read a scripture, the gospel of the day, and say a prayer. And kids are looking around, and and it's like, what's going on here? And that can be so intimidating. Mm that uh, moms and dads will just freeze up and just not move forward. And I got to tell you, I really believe that it is in part spiritual warfare, that the devil hates the idea that a mom or a dad is going to lead their family in prayer and gather the family in the home and do an act of fostering faith, like leading them in prayer, and will use that idea of, who do you think you are? You know, you're not perfect. You're not mature enough. You, you don't have any training in this. You don't know what to do. This is going to be embarrassing. And, and they let the perfection be the enemy of the really, really good thing that is happening in launching out into the deep. And so for me, that is one of the, that, that is what, uh, in part, St. John Henry Newman is getting at. Like, just launch out. Just launch yeah. out. That's a good example. I mean, I can just see that dynamic happening. I mean, I don't. I haven't heard it the same way you have, but I can certainly see how that would would work. Well, in fact, this kind of leads to quote number four. I'll come back to number three, but it it is sort of like a like a link in a chain here. These different quotes: uh, if we are intended for great ends, we are called to great hazards. Father Nagel, if we are intended for great ends or goals, we are called to great hazards. I think this is just the magnanimity idea of being a great soul. Um, that, and, and I think that Newman, Newman was an incredibly charismatic person, actually. You know, and you wouldn't think, you know, here's this college professor, you know. Um, but the, he had a charisma about him. He was a leader. He had, he had followers, you know. That, that was one of the reasons why when he became a Catholic, it was such a shocker because so many of these people in this movement looked at him as their leader. And so people were afraid that he's going to take the whole church over to Rome or something, you know. Um, but because he, he, he wanted to do great things for God, I think. I think there was this idea of the great soul in him. And again, just going back to the other saints as well, um, that idea of wanting to do great ends. I think our problem is that we don't want to do great things. Um, in, in our lives, that, that we're, we, settle, we settle for such a small amount of who we're supposed to be and what God wants us to do. So th- that idea of, yeah, we're going to take risks and we're going to sacrifice. There's going to be sacrifices. There's going to be costs if our life is going to be a life that's directed towards sanctity. So again, am I a, 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 a large soul or am I a pusillanimous soul, a small soul? Um, I think that's something we could each ask ourselves in terms of, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to become you know, President of the United States or a cardinal or whatever, whatever the world would say is you've made it. But it does mean that there's going to be hazards in your life. There's going to be spiritual, physical hazards that you're going to face big obstacles. And that's because you're trying to do big things, at least in terms of your relationship with God. You know, Father Lewis, you were late Mm -hmm. 
getting to the recording because of a great hazard. Wasn't that right? That's maybe, right. Maybe there's a great end that you're accomplishing here today. Still waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, uh, you, in fact, for, for listeners who don't know, he was, uh, there was a, what, road construction. And yeah. so there was a hazard there, so you couldn't get by. <laughs> the so. flagger would not let me through, no matter how much I begged. <laughs> but thanks be to God, I wasn't like... Jesus' parable where you were late for the wedding feast and, sorry, grind your teeth, gnash Outer them, darkness. Know, wailing, outer darkness forever. We let you in. Oh, so. thank you very yes, much. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. You could, you could share about this quote. Well, and so, um, um, you know, what, what, is the, what is the greatest end? You know, I think it's, uh, like Father Nay was saying, it's not necessarily be president or a cardinal. Those are what uh, the world may view as like you've made it, but um, but God knows what's truly the greatest end for each of us. It's particular to each of us as far as each of us is just unique and have a different vocation and achieving that and attaining to the uh, to that end is the greatest thing. And, um, and we heard this when I was in seminary early on at Bishop White when Father Darren Connell was the rector there. He said, the, regardless of our vocation, the closer we get to... Um, to recognizing and fulfilling the word of the will of God in our lives, the more intense the devil's attacks to block us from that. And so whatever it is, it could be God's will for me today. And if I try to do that, you know, watch out for the savagery and the grand scheme of things, the, the, uh, the uh, God's will for me, for my life, for my vocation. And, um, and, it, and you know, the devil will, and his attacks will just rear itself in ugly ways and all kinds of ways. And those are the, the greatest, well, actually the, the worst, you know, hazards um, because they have to do with the the, the f- ultimate fulfillment of of our lives, played out in vocation and other things. And uh, if if we would just humble ourselves and recognize that that's going to happen, this is why I try to counsel folks like in spirit direction is, as you pursue this, just anticipate that uh, you're going to be met with all kinds of opposition and um, uh, of the world or of Satan or of yourself. And um, and those are hazards because they're trying to deter you and derail you from fulfilling God's will for you in your life, particularly as I talk to folks as they're trying to discern their vocation. You know, this, uh, this quote is also actually a very fitting uh, quote for my talk on Thursday night at St. Monica's and Friday night. Um, I'm going to identify the fact that we live in a time that has migrated to great hazards for any Catholic family that is choosing to be intentional uh, in pursuing their Catholic faith uh, in, in this moment in history, that uh, it's hazardous. It is, you will face obstacles, you will face resistance, you will face um, uh, uh, attacks that just weren't there to the same degree, intensity, uh, uh, or, um, or totality uh, around the life that, that we live uh, in, in, out in the world today. Um, and so whether we like it or not, great hazards are what we are now signed up for, um, for anyone who's striving to live, just let, let's call it live a visible life as a Catholic Christian disciple of Jesus. There are great hazards involved in that, in, in, in the public sphere. Um, and so one of the things that I've focused on, again, with Carrie, as we think about raising our kids, is introducing them to, to little hazards to little challenges that they will not find comfortable or easy, but it's going to help prepare them to face bigger hazards mm-hmm. when they are on their own, when they are in college, when they are beyond college, moving out into the world. Here's just a, a simple, simple example. There's a new student um, at the Oaks in my son John Luke's grade, and he was struggling to fit in. And so I've been reaching out to the parents to say, hey, um, you know, what, what, what can we do to help? And, and he mentioned, oh, you know, he likes to play Frisbee. I'm like, okay, great. So I said to John Luke, I said, hey, um, tomorrow at lunch, you're praying, you're going to play Frisbee. Dad, no one plays Frisbee at lunch. Dad, mm-hmm. this doesn't happen. We play soccer. And I'm like, but you know what? You're going to be a leader. You're going to influence kids. You're going to go, like leaders, I say, I say two things about leaders. They go first and they influence others to move in that direction. So I said, you're going to go first and you're going to influence your classmates at lunch to play frisbee so that this kid can fit in. You're going to take one for the team is what you're going to do. You're going to stretch. You're going to step up. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to extend yourself. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I'm like, you know what? Too bad. You're, gonna, you're called to be a leader, and this is what that means. And, um, and so he was hemming and hawing. And so I, I, I called John Mark over, his uh, 10th grade older brother, I said, hey, 
uh, tomorrow at lunch, you, uh, you want to play Frisbee? He said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, yeah. In fact, uh, one of my buddies was saying, hey, why don't we play Frisbee at lunch? I'm like, great, there we go. Well, now we've got three guys, and that other guy's four. And sure enough, they had like the whole, all the boys in the <laughs> entire high school were playing Frisbee yesterday. Um, but it was it, based on the willingness to face an uncomfortable mm-hmm. small hazard. And you step up and look what you can do. You can accomplish something that it's not a great end, but it's a it's a good end, right? It's a, it's a it's a good little thing. Um, and so I think that that's part of the challenge that we have today is to help our brothers and sisters in, in the in the faith. You who are listening to this program today, that you may not feel like ready to face a great hazard. We'll start by facing a little hazard, and um, and in doing that, you'll achieve a good that can lead to some momentum to achieve even greater ends. Yeah. All right. Well, let's continue on. Uh, any comments on that, fathers? Yes, amen. Well, I was thinking, yeah, amen. I was thinking like, uh, you know, you mentioned you and Carrie uh giving talks and uh coaching families, parents how to how to strengthen their Christian identity in the home and so on and and as you were saying there, I just think that one of the worst things that uh maybe parents can do to in that regard is to be these helicopter parents where every little thing has got to like just uh, you know, protect the child from everything. Wrap the child, wrap the child in bubble wrap, and 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 then because you know, you're not going to be around forever, and then the slightest thing will just set them off. And we're raising whole generations now of these helicoptered, bubble wrapped children. Do you know the other phrase that's connected to parenting styles? One is helicopter. The other one is free range. Free range, free oh. range parenting. I don't know if you've heard that before. I was a free range child, and I'm happy. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're free range parents. We are with our first child with helicoptering, but you know what? A helicopter can only be over one kid. So yeah. as we had two, three, four, five, it was like, okay, I'm done with this <laughs> free range baby. Let's go. There's some fences, but there's a lot of land to move around on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Continuing on, then let's get down to quote number six. Uh, and I think Father Lewis, you're up. We can believe what we choose. We are answerable for what we choose to believe. We can believe what we choose. We are answerable for what we choose to believe. Yeah. You know, I, I try to tell folks, uh, like in the, uh, in the parish in particular, in homilies or in spirit direction and other things, that, uh, you know, faith is an act. We, we got to put just the first words of the creed, I believe. Well, the Latin implies this, you know, movement of, of direction, I put my faith into, you know, God. I choose to believe in God. You know, it's not, it, it can't be something that happens to us in a very passive way insofar as God will give us an epiphany or some kind of revelation. But we still have to choose even then. We have to choose whether or not we can trust our minds that we're not going crazy or that this was an authentic thing. And so we've got to believe that. And if, if we just, if we choose not to believe in anything, then I guess, uh, like in nature, the, supernat- the supernatural abhors a vacuum, and something will be chosen for you. And, um, and so we're going to be answerable for that. But, uh, but I, I, I like that. Be- I like this, uh, this quote. It uh, just reaffirms when I try to share people that, that faith is an act, and we, and we got to choose wisely what we're going to put our faith in. It's like um, uh, Joshua said to the Israelites once they got into the Holy Land, you know, you can choose these gods over here, you can choose the gods of your forefathers, but as for me and my family, we choose the Lord. And choose now who you're going to serve. I think this. I think this is an interesting quote. I don't think I've, I've read this before. Or at least I don't. I don't remember it. And it's a, it's a complicated in some ways. It's at least it's a it's filled with um, filled with meaning. But I think that our our current age and culture, um, we we don't think that we're answerable because we we don't really think we will uh, what we believe. We think it's, it's we act on feelings. I think. And so there's this, this sense of if this is something given to me and I have to be true to it because I don't have a control of it. It just comes, I feel, you know, I feel like it's kind of, it's from my God and therefore it's from me. And therefore I'm not answerable, responsible in the sense that, that I've chose it. This is just me. And so don't judge me and you can't, and I'm not answerable because this is just being authentic or something. So I, I do think that idea of choosing to believe is, is kind of, in some ways, in some ways, it sounds like it's very fitting for our culture because we're all about choice. But the very the idea that this is somehow I will and I'm answerable, I will to what I believe, and therefore I'm answerable for it. I'm responsible. I think that that is something that we really struggle with. 
Yeah, it's an interesting quote. Uh, I would have thought, um, like today, you, instead of the word believe, put in the word do. Yeah. We can do what we choose. Yeah. We're answerable for what we choose to do. Yeah. Right? Because that's more about like pro choice, right? right? Yeah. That, that mentality. But this is linking action, which is associated with the will, and the intellect, which is associated with belief, um, and, you know, in terms of uh, the, con- uh, the, the concepts or the content of belief. Um, and so, in a relativistic culture, you don't think about that. You think about the, the sense of, um, I have the, the I focus more on the fact that I've got the space to embrace whatever I want to accept as true. But that idea of you're going to be held to an account, that's really worth proposing. That's really worth pondering. So I, I think this is a very valuable quote for today. Well, we're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to dive in uh, and continue on with this conversation about St. John Henry Newman quotes. Uh, we're recording this on his feast day on Friday. You're hearing this on the feast of St. Vincent de Paul. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kernan with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. And Father Nagel, it is your turn. And so, Father Nagel, I'm going to surprise you here. You oh. get to pick. You get to pick, all right? So okay. there's so many left. We only get a few more as... We've already blown past what Father Lewis's prediction was. So I just have to point that out. But uh, I have where would I'd, you want? I'd like to go to number eight. Okay, great. From the age of fifteen, dogma has been the fundamental principle of my religion. I know no other religion. I cannot enter enter into the idea of any other sort of religion. Religion, as mere as a mere sentiment, is to me a dream and a mockery. So the reason I, uh, this is, I think, one of the, the things that uh, really influenced me. Um, he, John Henry Newman, again, some, some Catholics in his latter part of the 19th century talked about him being a liberal Catholic, and he would deny that. He, he had some, you know, he had his own positions and some issues, but he said, for him, a liberal is an anti-dogmatic uh, position, that it's, it becomes relativistic. It's, it's that it's what I want. It's... Uh, Again, a mere sentiment in that sense that it, that it's you know, it, there's no there's nothing solid and objective in terms of dogma and doctrine, and he was not for that. He said no. In fact, his whole problem with the Church of England was that it was not dogmatic, that you you know you could believe what you wanted to, and you had within this one church contradictory ideas that were all accepted. So he said this doesn't make any sense to me, and so the tracts for the time, so they're called tractarians as well as you know at, at that time. They were just laying out, um, again, positions and doctrines they were trying to kind of rescue from the past. And so I do think there's something to be said for our, for our own age here, too. For us, the idea of the very word of dogma is like it, it's anathema, if we could use that term today. That the idea that there's a dogma that I'm beholding to, answerable to, uh, again, going back to number six, is something that's very fraught. And so I, I think that you can't call Newman a progressive or liberal because he says, no, I, I, I believe in the dogmatic principle. Otherwise, there's no real religion. It's just me and myself and I. So again, I think that's an important part of, of understanding Newman today as well. Father Lewis. Well, I like the, you know, something you said toward the end there, Father Nagel, is, you know, it made me think, you know, just to, just to whisper the word dogma, you're getting all kinds of, you know, raised eyebrows and heads turning and wondering who's the the rigid person over there, and and um, it, it's it's strange to see him put it so so. Uh, and at the age of 15, also struck out that dogma has been the fundamental principle of my religion. Man, when I was 15, I was I was still chasing girls and things like this. I was worried about my first car. I was not thinking about dogma. And so, boy, you know, he just uh, is a different class, I guess, or it was a different era. But, but, uh, and it goes on to say, and he, and he hasn't, and he, you, you, I was thinking, I was wondering, I haven't heard this quote before, I was wondering, from the age of 15, dogmas have been the fundamental principle of my religion. And then he was gonna, I thought he was going to start to nuance this. But since then, I've, I've uh, matured, I've, I've grown nu- more nuanced in my, in my age. And he doesn't do that. He keeps, he keeps going, he keeps doubling down and tripling down in, in religion as a mere sentiment. You know, it might be more nuanced understanding of religion, but to him is a dream. And I like that word mockery. To treat religion like that, but what is just a, a mockery of of uh, of the establishment of the church that Christ came to give, and a mockery of what God is about. And God's God's got love. For that's no question about that. But but love's got uh, love's got boundaries. Love's got you know, rules. You know, there's rules for the family, and there's rules in the household. And 
a river's got great force because it's bound by its its uh, shoreline, uh, you know. And so, you know, anyway, you know, religion as a mere sentiment was a mockery of all that. I guess, uh, I guess, a love without boundaries is uh, like a river without boundaries; it just becomes this dead, gross swamp. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, uh, you know, anyway, I, it, it struck me. Uh, it struck me as uh, I was I was caught off guard by where he was going with this, and, and happily so. You know, he sees dogma as it's just fundamentally important. You know, it's uh, for me. This I think, and Father Nagel, correct me. Uh, this is somewhat reminiscent of some of the major movements of the time. Where you have right. romanticism versus right. yeah. uh, a stronger uh, appreciation for. Um, faith is having content associated with it. So the idea of separation was a big deal. And you have, writing at the same time, Soren Kierkegaard, who is trying to like explore more fully the emotional dimension of faith um, and linking it back to belief. Uh, I think this is a way that, um, this is one of the, like, the trails that... Um, that Newman was pursuing where the illative sense makes so much sense. Um, right. the, the idea of, okay, look, it, it's not a mere sentiment, um, but let's focus on sentiment and talk about how we can use that to trace back to or lead forward to the bedrock of faith, which is dogma, which is belief, which is something that you can sink your teeth in and you can plant your life on. And so I, I don't know. That's my that's my own thought about it. Um, you, did you want to uh, address that at all? I, I do think he's reacting um, to the whole. You mentioned the Romantic movement in, in Germany and elsewhere in the early 1800s, the Schleiermacher and the, the liberal um, movement within Protestantism in German German Protestantism is being you know biblical historical criticism. All this is coming out. And, and he's reacting in some ways to that because that's moving into England as well. And he's saying, no, I'm, this is not the right way to go. This is, this is going to be, this is going to end up in the swamp. And so he, he's trying to, for, to change the Church of England to, to be on a more dogmatic basis. And, and he feels ultimately he fails to do that. So he says, I can't, I can't stay here. Um, and so again, he leaves. All right, so um, we're up against a break. When we come back, Father uh, Father Lewis, it's going to be your turn. So it, this may be our last quote. So there's I'm a ready. lot at stake. Right. We want to make sure you choose a good one. Okay, back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. Uh, this is uh, Tom Kern with Father Lewis and Father Nagel. And Father Lewis, now it's, you're up, and we've got about 10 other quotes to choose from. So. Oh. We, I don't know which one God would have us choose, but you better be perfect oh. in your choice. That's what I'm getting from, oh. from uh, St. Newman. No, 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 no. A man would do nothing if he waited until he yeah, could do yeah. it so well that he could, no one could find fault. Yeah. The pressure's on. Not only was I late, but now I'm, the, I'm choosing the last mm-hmm. one for our discussion. Well, I'm going to jump down to the 15 on our list. The reason why Christ is unknown today is because his mother is unknown. Sorry, I just took your job there, Tom. I'm sorry, you've been reading the quotes, but that jumped out at me because a lot of what we've co- talked about, you know, like uh, what I kind of perceive as kind of your, your typical um, uh, Englishman, you know, there would be a clever turn of phrase that has you really thinking and maybe even head-scratching. Chesterton is like, that's all, he's all about that, it seems, for example, and some of these feel like that, but this is like, you know, of what we've considered, feels to me like the most straightforward. And I wonder, did he say this, would he have said this until he became a Catholic? Because I'm not sh- too sure about the anger condition, how much uh, uh, reverence they would have for our mother, but to say something this boldly, I don't even know if, if other faith traditions would say that. But, but So I wonder if he says this after he became a Catholic and, uh, and has me going like, wow, you know, it's right up there with uh, St. Jerome's ignorance of scriptures, ignorance of Christ. And he's saying basically ignorance of Mary is ignorance of Christ. And um, so that, you know, I want to know more who Mary is now because I want to know Christ. Well, there you go, through Mary to Jesus. Um, anyway, for that and a whole lot of reasons, uh, that's why that, that one jumped right at me. Was that the one you were thinking, Tom? I no, that's so. a great one. I oh, love good. it. <laughs> Father Nagel. I, you know, I, I actually don't know where this comes from, uh, this quote, but it, may, it could it very well may be during his, from his Catholic period, but it could be from his Anglican period as well, because this, again, this was one of the things that was getting people nervous in the Church of England that Newman and his Tractarian followers were seen to be getting too friendly with Mary. Uh, there's this, this Marian 
um, uh, devotion did start to appear. And, and again, as you, as you said, Father Lewis, this, is, this was suspicious uh, in the eyes of many. And, but, and I hadn't really thought about the Jerome, uh, you know, the, the Jerome comparison, but I think that's kind of, that's kind of powerful as well. And, and it is true that he did have a deep devotion to Mary. Uh, Newman did. So um, it doesn't surprise me. It certainly sounds very Catholic. Um, so if somebody says this, probably is going to end up in the Catholic Church, whether he said it as a Catholic or not. Well, I want to, uh, so we've discussed the context for it, but I'd like to know, what do you think it means? Mm-hmm. So fathers, uh, I'm going to put you back on the spot here. So <laughs> what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe he is speaking... Like, what in, does it mean to say that his mother is known? What, is it, what does it mean to know the mother, uh, know the Blessed Mother? And how is that connected to knowing Christ? Yeah, and the same, you know, I would want to know, if I'm going to strive to know Mary, I'm going to, I want to foster a devotion, a Marian devotion to her, so I don't want to just know about her, but I'm going to, like, address her and ask for her prayers, uh, seek for her counsel like I would my own earthly mother. And as I... You know where did you know where did Jesus uh, get his humanity? You know, most of us get our humanity from the Father and the Mother. Jesus didn't have that, so whatever whatever humanity Jesus had came completely from his mother. So if if I really want to know, especially Christ and his humanity, you know what makes him tick? What are his favorite foods? You know those kind of things. You know uh, I'm going to turn to Mary because she raised him, she gave birth to him, and his humanity comes from her. So I want to like get to know her in prayer get to know um, aspects of her life through Scripture, of course, and tradition and, and the devotions that have come about to help folks to get to know her and to lean on her and to trust in her intercession. I, uh, that's, what it, that's what I think, uh, that's the approach I would take on getting to know Mary. Okay, great. I, uh, Father Nagel, you've got one minute. I would just say there's also, perhaps, you could look at this from a patristic standpoint, that Newman was very involved with the Fathers of the Church and how Mary was also not only devotionally, and spiritually, but also even uh, doctrinally important in terms of the uh, development of who Christ is. And, and the idea of going back to the fathers who started to develop this, um, the importance of Mary within the dogmatic tradition of knowing who Jesus is, uh, who Christ is. Uh, again, there's huge questions in the, the fourth and fifth centuries about that. And, and who Mary is and, and was is, is part of that as well. So I don't think it's simply an emotional attachment, although again, with his relative sense, I think that he would say that this is part of understanding Jesus is to know his mother, as Father Lewis said. But also there's even uh, doctrinally, that we want to know uh, the Theotokos. So I guess I put that there too. I think those are great answers. Uh, yes, surprising uh, and uh, like really thoughtful. Thank you, Fathers, both for those answers. All right, we're up against the end of our program today. Do appreciate your fathers being on. Thank you so much for listening today on Sound Insight. And please join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight. God bless your day.